Today, we're talking about how to grow a $100 million a year business, strategies to level up your leadership, and what to do when shit hits the fan. Welcome to episode 15 with the legendary Justin Prince. You are listening to Len Jones Party of Two, where experts and influencers speak honestly and openly about their keys to success. Sponsored by TrueFace.ai, where your face is the key. For more information on TrueFace, please contact your host at ian at trueface.ai. Now, pay close attention, because you're going to learn today. What up, party people? It's the young man, Mr. Len Jones, a.k.a. Ian Lenhart, and I hope you're having a phenomenal day of making moves and executing on your goals. You know, on this podcast, we've been hearing a lot of amazing stories of people taking the path less traveled, but what I think what would serve you best is to focus on probably the most foundational component of building wealth and success, and that is leadership. And if you're new to the podcast, our mission here is twofold, to educate millennials by dissecting the come-up stories of incredible humans by extracting the golden nuggets that you can apply now to better your life and second to have all of my friends in life that are making moves to meet my other friends in life that are making moves to create one giant community of extraordinary people now i'm extra stoked today because i know i just absolutely killed it by bringing today's guest onto the podcast you know that feeling when someone walks into a room and their presence alone simply causes the energy and the vibe of the room to rise that's justin prince a family man entrepreneur author and leadership mentor justin is a associated with legends in the industry, such as John C. Maxwell, and even sits on his advisory board. On top of that, he has built four different multi-million dollar sales and marketing organizations. He helped transform a company that had experienced eight years of declining revenue and has went on to build an organization of over 200,000 people that generates well over 100 million a year in revenue. But something I find more important than all of that is that Justin is just a really good guy. At the ripe age of only 38, Justin is a father of four and is living the dream, speaking on the largest stages and is only getting started. I first met Justin three years ago and I've since seen him speak multiple times and every time it somehow gets better and better. And today's podcast absolutely didn't disappoint. Now, before we start, I must say, if you enjoy this podcast and want to support future conversations like these, please leave a positive review. It means a lot. So without further ado, let's jump into it. All right, we're here with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. JP Justin Prince. How you doing? I'm honored to be on, brother. Great to uh, great to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me. You know what's crazy? I looked back at my Instagram, and exactly three years ago today, I picked you up from an airport. That's right. And and I didn't know who you really were at the time. You know, my buddy John was like, "You got to go get this guy. It's urgent. It's last second." I'm like, "All right, I'll go. I'll go." And then he told me who you were, and I'm like, oh, damn, I got precious cargo. I, I can't screw this one up. I'm like, two hands on the wheel. I'm like, let's get there. Ten and two on the wheel. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've come a long way in just those three years. It's truly remarkable. And I know a lot of close, close people in my life look up to you as more than just a leader, as just like a mentor, friend, and and people constantly look at you and they're like, how does JP do it all? Like, how are you able to kind of personify this kind of flaw, not flawless, in a sense, human that's able to maintain a great family, stay in shape, build a huge business and, you know, do what you do on stages and just like motivate and lead and just your passion speaks through. So, you know, I'm really curious with, you know, you've had a ton of accomplishments in your life, right? Um, one of those that really stands out is you were a big part in helping you know, invent a new business model. Could you kind of dive into what the story is behind that and kind of why you decided to, to do that? I'd be happy to. Thanks for, uh, thanks for all the kind words. So, you know, I think people hear all those, you know, flattering kind things and they think that you are kind of born this way or something, but you know, um, my story has been built on the on the altar of struggle, you know, and just and just making it all happen and, and going out there. You know, I came from a, a broken home at age 12. We moved 13 times in the next seven years uh, through my kind of my teenage years. I learned how to work with my dad when I was eight years old. This is so funny, Ian, because he would drop me off at his construction sites. He was a land developer and a home builder. And so these, he had these construction sites where they had like, you know, 20 homes were going to be built, but they had two of them or three of them or four of them ready, you know, uh, in, in construction. And I would go as a as an eight year old kid. He would drop me off at this at the set of about eight or nine in the morning and pick me up at five o'clock at night. Like I look back now and I'm like, what the heck was this guy thinking? You know, 
and uh, I would go out there and clean up the, like throw the wood in the dumpster and sweep out the construction sites. And I just do all this kind of just grunt work. When I was 18, I was lining a ditch with rocks for my dad's construction company. And so I just really had no real professional background. I got into college. I lasted a semester and a half in college and, and uh, was selling animated Bible movies at the mall at a mall kiosk. And I was like, this is better than college. I was making more than my professors. I'm like, I'm going to do this. And so I, I, I learned kind of through the school of, of hard knocks, if you will, how to overcome the challenges, learn some of the skill sets and make it happen. And so that led me into uh, when I had the chance. So check this out. I'm 20. I'm 32 years old and I get called in to be a consultant for a company that's a multi hundred million dollar year company. They operate in 20 plus countries around the world. They do. Uh, they've been in business for 25 years. So tons of legacy, tons of history, tons of complexity. Um, they have hundreds of products, uh, over 250 SKUs globally. And they call me in as, as a consulting, as a, a part of a consulting team to help them transform this company and completely reinvent it. And so we had really tight timelines. We had to make stuff happen rapidly. And we not only created a new brand, a new company, which, which just to give you some context, Changing a company's brand, like their name, their products, I mean, this is a huge endeavor. This is a very expensive, very risky endeavor because you have this consumer base, hundreds of millions of dollars a year of consumers, that if you blow it, like in other words, if you don't do well with this idea, you're going to be in trouble. You know, this isn't going to pan out so well. So uh, we had that, and then it, in the process of doing it, we thought, you know what? I wanted to, I've been in the network marketing world since I was 25. I had built um, two uh, multi-million dollar, two large teams, uh, two huge organizations. But I also had sold my business in network marketing and I thought, I'm getting out of this. I'm not going to do this anymore. And the reason, if I had to simplify it, if I had to overly simplify it, I would say, I didn't feel like we had enough customers. I know that if, if any of your audiences are network marketers, like, no, no, we have customers. Well, our customers are typically distributors that sign up to be a customer, but they have to like sign up and get on auto ship and pay their registration fees so they can get wholesale pricing versus retail pricing. And so they're actually like the FTC looks at them as like failed distributors. <laughs> you know, they don't look at them as real customers. They look at someone that didn't sign anyone up. And what the problem is, is that if, if you recruit someone and they recruit and they recruit and they recruit and they recruit, if the lowest person can't go recruit new people, they can't make any money. And two or three or four months from now, they stop their order because they're they join the business not just to only consume the product. They're trying to like build a business for themselves. And so, if I remember thinking when they quit, it unqualifies the little rank above them, and then they quit, unqualifies the rank above them, and then they quit, unqualifies the rank above them. And I wasn't going to go around the the promise of network marketing is this idea of true residual income. And whether we say it that implicitly or whether we imply it, that's that's the dream. The dream right. is build it once, be paid on it forever. And you build this residual income base of business. And if you, but networks erode on from the bottom up when people, when the momentum slows. And so I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to go around telling everyone they can build a true residual income if I don't think they can build a true residual <laughs> income because of, of the business model, the structure of the business model. And so we looked at, at the power of network marketing, which is the power of human connection, the power of these people that talk to each other. I tease networkers. I'm like, we're the, we're, we're the unique group that gets like seven of us in a three person, you know, like in a two person car and drives nine hours one way to the meeting, you know, and we're just like, this is amazing. Like the next day at work, we walk into our cubicle at seven, in the, eight in the morning and we're like, oh my gosh, oh, like all tired. And our friend's like, what's the matter? And like, dude, do you even have a dream? <laughs> like you should do what I'm doing. This is amazing, you know? And so um, we're just this really passionate, really entrepreneurial, really fired up group of people. Like you'll never get more hugs than you will at a network marketing event. I mean, everybody just loves each other and they're actually super happy. And so I thought, how do you harness that power, but then combine it with like what's happening today, which is the, sh the massive shift in retail. And so I shared this story and you may have heard this before, but I think it kind of encapsulates a little bit of, of where the business model came from. But I'm sitting six months before this whole project started, I'm sitting at lunch with a friend of mine. I'm doing private equity consulting. I'm completely out of network marketing at this point. And I'm sitting at lunch with a friend of mine. This dude is dressed to the nines. He looks like he looks like a like he's going to like a New York City pr movie premiere or something. The guy's got, you know, cufflinks on and his cufflinks match his shoelaces and he's got, you know, his his pocket square with his jacket. I was like, bro, where do you get all your clothes? We're in Provo, Utah. What's wrong with you? 
And he said, I shop at Nordstrom Rack, and I'd heard of Nordstrom Rack before. And he said, I shop at guilt.com. And I go, what's guilt.com? And the dude looks at me like I'm a complete idiot, like I live in a cave, you know? And I'm like, I'm kind of hip, like I'm kind of plugged in. Like, what's guilt.com? And he picks up his phone, sends me a text, which has a link to a $25 disc discount to guilt.com. And it gives him a link of $25 off because he shared with me. And I just remember thinking to myself, I'm like, that was so cool. So I got in my car and I remember just thinking, network marketing should be that easy. Like, guess how many Super Saturdays Guilt.com sent my friend to? Zero. The dude just knew how to talk about it, you know? It was the power of retail. And, and so what's happening is you have retailers like Guilt, even Uber, uh, Juanilo, One Kings Lane. There's these online digital retailers that are putting in millions and millions of customers. They are uh, doing billions of dollars in business and they have no stores. It's all driven through word of mouth. They're like out word of mouthing the network marketing industry, which the word of mouth or the network marketing industry is the word of mouth industry. Guilt.com in six years put in six million customers, six million customers and uh, did over a, uh, a billion per year in sales with no stores. And I remember just, it just hit me. I thought, what if you could have the power of online digital retail but which is the normalcy of, of, of digital retail, but you can combine it with the power of people, which is the power of network marketing. But instead of giving someone like a $25 discount or some sort of like shopping credit, you could pay them a residual commission for the rest of their freaking life on, on referring customers and you could drive real customer volume. And so we created this idea called social retail. And sometimes you know, I'll have people that be like, is it just, isn't it just network marketing? You just found a different name. Instead of calling it MLM, they call it network marketing. Instead of calling it network marketing, they call it relationship marketing. Like all these little weird ways that we like try and get around like what we really do. And the way I would describe it to you is this. If you took an i, if you were trying to describe an iPad, like back in the day when it first came out and someone said, okay, all they knew was that they knew a MacBook pro, like a laptop and they knew an iPhone. And you're trying to ex explain the iPad. They're like, okay, so it's a laptop. You're like, no, 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 it's not a laptop. It's it's this, it's like, it's smaller than a laptop. They go, oh, okay, so it's like an iPhone. They're like, no, dude, it's not an iPhone. It's bigger than an iPhone. They're like, like a laptop. You're like, no, dude, it's this middle thing. It's called a, it's called a tablet. And what, what Apple did when they launched the, the, the iPad was they didn't launch a product. They actually launched an entirely new category, an entirely new industry called tablets. It's now this multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry. And so when we launched social retail, it wasn't like a better MLM, like a better version of MLM. It was literally like a new thing. It was like the 1.0 version. And that, that story and the, the realization that we've had times where, you know, we've done hundreds of millions of dollars in new business. Like we launched a team, did, did a ton of, of new business. We've had times, we've had months that we had over 90% of the revenue was, was from customers. So in other words, that's like the definition of residual income is when you have people buying your products that are customers that just love your shampoo. They don't care if Barbara and Karen are in an argument. Like they just love each other. They just love the products. Do you know what the industry standard is when it comes to products to affiliates or like not the industry standard or what majority of companies are seeing right now in the industry? So the industry is shifting really dramatically right now because of, of experiences kind of like what you you went through a number of years ago. Absolutely. With Vima. And for everyone that's listening, if you guys look at number episode seven, BK Bareko told the entire story for the first time on this podcast. It was insane. I love that interview, by the way. He did. He it was really interesting to hear him walk through all of the components and we can argue by the way the the validity of, of should that have happened we can argue that but what the ultimate argument of why it happened was they they were basically saying you don't have enough customers you just have reps buying your product and it almost shifted the discussion um, of what a pyramid scheme is because here's the thing what what the answer to a pyramid scheme has always been is is a, it's not a pyramid scheme if you're shifting a product like if there's a legitimate product or service changing hands vima had a legitimate product and service changing hands. So it shifted the discussion of what's a pyramid and, and they shifted it to, if all you basically have is reps buying your product, you are in trouble. Now here's the thing with Vima and, and same thing with Herbalife, by the way, because Herbalife had the same type of issues, uh, not, as, not as severe as what Vima, Vima went through from like a shutdown perspective. Vima just got like locked up. Herbalife, they went through massive uh, litigation. But basically what they're saying is, uh, that it's a pyramid because they don't have enough customers. Vima and Herbalife both had customers. This is part of what I'm sharing with you is we had to redefine what a customer is. If a customer has to sign up and like pay the registration fee to get wholesale pricing versus retail pricing, the FTC does not look at that as a customer. Like, so going back to your question, 
most network marketing companies, particularly before they're trying to like, they're doing their best to shift over the fast as they can. And they're, they're not doing it that well, but they're trying to, I would, I would be willing to tell you that 98, 99% of their revenue comes from people who have signed up, including customers, by the way, including customers have signed up to buy the products where only a couple percentage points maybe would be like a true preferred customer. It's typically like people that join. And the reason they join typically is because like the, even the DSA says this, they join because they want the wholesale pricing. They don't want to pay retail. They want to pay wholesale. So they get a little bit of a discount if they join. So we're like, it's just like a Costco membership. But the FTC doesn't look at, look at it like that. They look at that as someone that joined your company, joined your business, and is now failing because they're not making any money. So to have 70 to 90% is like, it's just literally unheard of, particularly when you're doing you're doing massive amounts of business every single month. Yeah, it's insane. Direct sales is the second largest industry in the world. So, you know, what Justin's talking about is truly revolutionary and astonishing and crazy because it's almost nuts that the industry has been the way it has for so long, you know? So it's like what happened to Vima was definitely kind of a, you know, just like you said, maybe it shouldn't have happened to them. That's for damn sure. But, you know, it happened and the repercussions were kind of good for the industry because it set a standard. Yeah. Which is exciting. Yeah, I'll share this with you. Uh, in, in, the, in the 60s, so franchises really started, they started before this, but franchising really boomed in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, McDonald's, for example, was like 42 or it was, pardon me, it was 52. And then in the 60s, it just like, it just took off Chevron, McDonald's, like all these different big ones that we know now. And in the 70s, it got heavily regulated. In fact, there was a period in the 70s where if you said like you were a franchisee or a franchise or people, if you're a franchise or they thought you were a con artist. And if you were a franchisee, they thought you were a complete idiot. And the reason for that is they thought that people got more into selling the idea of the franchise than actually building a legitimate franchise. Does that make sense? The difference there, like, like I was just selling you like get more franchises versus like helping you to run a profitable uh, location. In 1978, the, the U S government came down and they regulated really tightly on the franchises. You had to have that they created disclosure acts that you had to do and so on to, to show here's what really happens with our franchise and here's what really happened with our business model. And that regulation is actually what legitimized the whole franchising industry. Like today, if someone says like, I'm starting a franchise, we're like, good for you, dude. Like, you're awesome. Like, go for it. But, but years ago, they're like, you're an idiot or you're getting conned or you're a con artist, that kind of an idea. And so network marketing, it's a good thing for network marketing to get regulated a little bit. It's good. And self-regulation is the best regulation, but where we all kind of come together, we're like, okay, let's make this just the whole thing a little bit more legitimate. And the way you make it legitimate is when people are buying your products without your opportunity. In other words, like that's like the definition of a great opportunity is people love what you sell without them wanting to have to sell it. They just love to consume it every single day and every single month. And that's what we've tapped into. And really we're leading, leading the industry on that charge. I have company uh, uh, top earners or consultants or, or owners that will call me all the time and like, tell me how you guys are doing this, you know, like, like what's going on here. And so uh, it's been, it's been pretty cool to, to be able to innovate and fix a model of a business model that I felt like was antiquated and broken and to bring it into, you know, the 2018, 19s and beyond. Your passion for the topic is just yeah, clearly you can see you're it. Like, you're like, dude, I have more questions than just this one. It's beautiful to see, but like, I, I'm really curious, you know, how did you as a leader, do you feel like, how did you learn your leadership qualities? Like, are there certain leaders that really just absolutely loved and always listened to? What do you think helped shape you into becoming the leader that you are today? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I had someone ask me a similar question, asked it in a little bit of a different angle than you just did. But they said, how did you go from like making pizzas and like doing construction and selling cartoon videos like building four multi-million dollar businesses and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Like what happened? You know, how did that work? And as I had to, as I thought about it and I tried to simplify it, I, I, it's the same answer I would give you. It was four things. It was what I call read, listen, surround, apply. Read, listen, surround, apply. So number one was I read great books. And it's so interesting because you can be mentored or by leaders through books. They pour their whole life into these books and you can actually sit down and read the book. And in the United States, it's interesting, uh, our average employee reads less than one book a year and our top CEOs, the top leaders or CEOs of these companies read an average of 60 books a year. 
So it's a 60 to 1 ratio. For every one they read, they read 60. What do you think the difference is in income? You know, like for every dollar the average worker makes, does the top CEO make 50? Do they make 100, 150? It's 319 to 1. Now, I'm not suggesting that the only difference between the top CEOs and the average workers are books. I'm not suggesting that's the only difference, but it's a difference that you can count. It's a 60 to 1 difference in books. It's a, it's a 319 to 1 difference in income. And so I've tried to become an avid learner, right? Just an avid studier. Uh, two was, was listening. I, I've literally like poured positive stuff into my brain for so long. Like my brothers used to make fun of me. We'd go to the gym. They're listening to like ACDC or something. You're like, like, let's get ready, you know? And I'm like listening. Like, let's get it. Yeah, that's right. I'm like listening to like Tony Robbins or something or Jim Rohn or whatever. Like I'm listening to like this positive. And they'd be like, what are you, what are you doing? Or I'm in my car and. They're listening to CDs. This is back when we had CDs. They're listening to CDs or music, and I'm listening to all this positive stuff. And so I just constantly poured. One of the one of the things I teach entrepreneurs to do, first of all, is to avoid your phone for the first hour of the day. This is, this is like this is like like hard for us to do because our phones, the first, according to research, is the first thing we touch. Touch our phone first, coffee second, toothbrush third. We haven't even rolled over and touched our spouse yet, and we're like freaking already on our phone, like turning the, the, the brightness down so we can like do it in the morning as we're laying in bed and we, you know, we're like already in our phone. And what happens is there's research done that says that you'll be 76% more productive if you will avoid your phone for the, or avoid your email for the first hour, 76%. So if you could increase your income by 76%, like would you do it? I mean, freak, of course. That's just on email. If you get out of your text, get out of your, your, uh, your social media and so on, and you just, you give yourself an hour. So the first thing I tell people is avoid your phone. The second thing is this, listen to something positive for the first 20 minutes you're awake. Like just pour positivity in. It's like a, it's like a well, like you pull water out of a well, like back in the olden days, you can't give what you don't have. And so you can't, you can't pour water out of, a, out of, a, of an empty well. And so I try and tell people just pour some positive positivity into your mind. Your brain works on wave cycles. It works at 10.5 wave cycles per second. Your subconscious is more, it can actually absorb more early in the morning. So it's rested. And so even if you're tired and groggy, your subconscious is ready to roll. And so as you pour positive stuff in, I tell people, listen with relaxed belief, believing that it's possible for you. And you can literally start to change your mind. You have stuff to share. So first is I read, I've read a lot of great books, listen to inspiring information. This third one is I surround myself with great people. And Ian, this has been critical to my career. Like Aristotle said, if I've seen further, it's only by standing on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> I've just been blessed to be around some cool folks, you know, and I'm a sponge. I like to ask a lot of questions. I like to listen. I like to observe. Uh, um, about 10 days ago, I was uh, in New York City for a private mastermind with Brendan Burchard. He's a multiple-time New York Times bestselling author and a kind of a leadership thought leader. Uh, last weekend, I was with him again in San Jose. This next week, I'll be in uh, Beverly Hills with John C. Maxwell. I'm part of an advisory council with John Maxwell, who's like... You know, 30 million copies sold of his books. Inc. Magazine said he's the world's foremost authority in leadership. Like That is incredible. Yeah, getting around guys like that, it's what's called the power of proximity. There's just power in surrounding yourself. You know how it is, uh, Ian, when you get around great people. Like, there's just, you don't even have to say it. You just, there's just something about them. Like, there's just the way that they think, the way that the, the subjects that they're talking about. I remember I was driving in the car one time. I was working two part-time jobs and trying to build my business full-time. And I was working with a friend of mine from Phoenix. The, by the way, I I um I was struggling. I was trying to put it all together at this point. I'm a young kid trying to put it all together. Working with a friend of mine who's also doing the business that we were doing. We were both in a network marketing business. I'm working two part-time jobs. He's making $1.2 million a year in real estate and mortgage in Phoenix. So he was uh, uh, he had a real estate brokerage. His wife had a, a mortgage brokerage. And they were making, they'd been averaging about $1.2 million a year. We're on the phone, or we're driving. And I was on the phone talking to a friend of mine about the Utah Jazz. Just kind of like just bull crap and just talking about nothing, you know. And my buddy is on the phone closing a real estate deal. We both hang up the phone about the same time. And he just made $70,000 on this real estate deal because he, he closed it right there on the phone. And I was talking about who the heck knows what. Just total nothing. Just total bull crap. And he said to me, he goes, now he said this to me. He called me out. He goes, bro, I'm making $1.2 a year. You're working two part-time jobs trying to build a business. And I'm on the phone hustling, closing stuff and making life happen. And you're, you're talking about who knows what. 
And it was such a good lesson. Like surrounding yourself with people like that, that lift you up to a new level. I remember I, I, um, one of the consulting projects I did when I sold my business a couple of years ago was with a guy that he went into a company when they were a, uh, they're about a hundred million dollar company. He came in as president, uh, came in as president, got equity and so on. They built that from a hundred million to 10 billion. And then they took that, they, he focused all of his equity into a sec second company. They took that one to 2 billion and they sold that one. And so you go to his, his home, his home's this massive estate. He has this huge equity fund and being around him, hearing what he talks about, hearing his philosophies in the world, watching how he does it. I mean, it lifted me to a whole different level. And so it's just the power of surrounding yourself with great people. And then the fourth thing is apply what you learn. You know, look, life is not an information process. It's an application process. And so it's not about what you know, it's about what you do. And uh, da Vinci said, it's he that doeth the deed that hath the power. So if you want the power, you got to do the deed. You can't just, you can't just read it. You can't just hear it. You can't just be around it. You got to do it. And so I think that that combination of reading, listening, surrounding and applying like a lot, you know, repeatedly over and over and over and over and being really curious and hungry and thirsty for knowledge that uh, I think that's part of where I've, I've, I've started to blossom into into a leader. Sometimes when you speak, I feel like there should be like an orchestra playing in the background with like violins because this is like Beethoven. You've mastered this craft. And just like you said, you're consistent. You've been able to surround yourself with such amazing people. One thing that I find very interesting and I think it kind of stems a little bit from, you know, the college dilemma. You mentioned you were in college for a semester and a half where a lot of people are used to spending a hundred grand, maybe even more up to 300, depending on what you're doing on a college education and you're spending money to learn. But when they leave college, people tend to never, ever spend any more money on their education. It's almost like in society, that's when you spend money and then you just, you know, try to get yourself back in your feet afterwards. You're in a few masterminds and the mastermind thing really like exciting to me. I do know and a lot because of the speakers I've been talking to, just like you said, the people I've been surrounding you to investing in your education yeah. after school is one of the most important things you can do. Can you kind of touch upon what these masterminds have done for you and what investing in your, your education means to you? Yeah, it's such a good question. Uh, I was listening to, there's a guy named Darren Hardy. Uh, he's kind of a, a leadership guy. And he, he got great advice when he was a young man, literally, I think he was like 21 years old, from, um, from Brian Tracy, who was like an old school leadership guy, right? He was like the generation before us. And Brian Tracy said, just like you'll spend 10% of your income in tithing, like you'll tithe to your charity or your church or whatever that looks like for you. He said, spend 10% of your earnings in uh, personal development, in, invested in yourself, tithe, if, if you will, to yourself. And so think about that. Let's say you make a hundred grand in a year. That's $10,000 that you invested into you, whether it was your books, through seminars, through masterminds, through, through personal development of some sort, an online course that you purchased, et cetera, right? And then if you made a million dollars a year, it's a hundred grand. Uh, I remember uh, Darren saying he got to a point where he's like, man, this is like getting harder and harder and harder because his income was increasing. He's like, how do I, how do I spend this 10% uh, of this to, to, to personally develop myself? And I've tried to take that philosophy and it's so interesting because you say to yourself, well, man, well, if I had a lot of money, I would do that too. No, 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 no. Faith precedes the miracle. You don't get the miracle. Then you get the faith. Like you don't plant the row of peas and then get a row of watermelon. You know, like there's some rules that we all have to live by, right? Like if you, if you're making 10,000 a year, take a thousand of it and invest that into yourself over the course of a year, buy some books. Jim Rohn said, never uh, miss a book. You have missed lunch if you have to, but never miss a book. Like you got to get kind of hungry and kind of like, I, I was just, I wanted to win so bad. I still do. Here's what's so cool about being around people. Like someone asked me, they said, I was at this Brendan event in California and they said, should I join the mastermind? Cause the mastermind's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty hefty fee, you know? And I'm not suggesting you start there, right? If you're, if you're, if you're just getting your career started, you can start uh, with books and audios and whatever. But I remember, this guy walked up to me and goes, is it worth going to the mastermind? He goes, what'd you get from it? And I actually got a ton from it. I have to look at all my notes. I go, but you want to know the number one thing I got from it? The number one thing that I pulled from that mastermind. I said, what's that? And I said, to think bigger. I left there and my, my mind was expanded. And there's nothing more expensive than a closed or a small mind. And so just to expand your mind, to think bigger, to be bigger, to dream bigger, to 
to, to, to demand more from yourself, to raise your expectations, to raise your standards. You know, we get in life what we, uh, what we tolerate. And so you raise what you're not willing to tolerate anymore, and also you get higher things. And so that was the number one thing I got from it. You say, well, was that worth the investment? Um, I think it's worth the investment multiple times over because over the period of your life, as you think bigger, do bigger things, demand more from yourself, you start to to affect the world and add more value to the world. And here's here's really the the, the lesson I share with you and with any of any of your people that are listening, your your friends and followers are listening, is that you're not paid for time, you're paid for value. So the marketplace is your great employer. You don't work for a company. You don't work for this this guy or this woman that you work for. You work for the marketplace, and the marketplace will pay you largely what it thinks you're worth. And so your your challenge is to become more valuable to the marketplace. It's the reason that you know I started making pizzas. I was making five dollars and twenty five cents an hour, you know, and then I uh, was making eight dollars. Well, what was it? I think seven dollars an hour doing construction. Maybe eight at some point when I got to my teenage years. And now you know you you make way more than that, right? How did that happen? I didn't. What happened is I became more valuable. The times didn't change. In other words, I still work just the hour but I bring more value to the hour. And so someone says, no, I'm worth $10 an hour. You say, no, if you were worth $10 an hour, you could stay home and they would still send you 10 bucks an hour. You're not worth $10 an hour. You're only bringing $10 worth of value to the hours that you work. The challenge is how do you increase your value? And, and going back to what I said, read, listen, surround, apply, get around great people, think bigger, start to, to grow your personal mindset. Your brain, it's really interesting. There's a, a lot of research it's called neuroplasticity. And basically what that means is this. It means your brain can look, it basically, it's like a muscle. It can grow, it can learn. And I'm not saying grow so huge. I'm just saying it can like, literally you can wire it to, to do different things. It's really exciting research because you're, it's, it's, it's not like what you got is what you got. You're not, what you have at 15 is not what you have at 50. If you, if you're willing to mold it and teach it and learn new stuff, you can learn un unbelievable amounts of stuff. And so for me, I just had a, a desire to learn. I think that personal development is critical. I think candidly, uh, I'm not going to soapbox. I think if someone wants to go to school, I think that's awesome. But man, go spend a hundred thousand dollars on your personal development, and and read some books and like get around some great people. I mean, the dividends could be off the charts, particularly if you're constantly applying what you're learning. So, I think that the gr continual growth, continual development, continual focus on becoming the person that you're striving to become is is. It's the name of the game. If, if, if success is your end outcome, if success is your end goal. Right. I mean, learning is just one of the greatest things about life, having hobbies. I mean, if anyone's listening and you ever got excited about anything in life, whether it be for me, fish tanks and scuba diving, or whether it be videography, rollerblading, whatever you're into, just getting excited about something and diving into that subject. I mean, that's like one of the greatest things about life, like learning and growing and because I mean, you know, we're only on this, this earth, such a finite time, you know, it's like, what are you spending your time on? And that's goes back to focus is the hardest thing in our lives, right? Like, I think so many of us are so much more gifted and talented and capable of such greatness. But because of these, you know, phones or whatever you call it, we're not focused. There's so many distractions. And like you said, being in these masterminds must put you on track to stay focused on your goals and think bigger and believe bigger. Because a lot of times people are like one or two little tiny adjustments away from a massive shift in their life. I'm reading the four hour work week again. I just love it. He just gives you a thousand ideas, Tim Ferriss, four hour work week on ways that you can right now go out and create an online business that generates residual income. And there is so many tutorials on how to do it. So I really highly recommend it. You mentioned Darren Hardy. It's funny. Um, we had a really unique opportunity in our last company with BK where Darren Hardy was the MC of the event. And I was really young and I was like 21 years old. It was one of my first big, big speaking engagements. It was like 3000 people. And I was like, I was lit. I was saying some crazy stuff. Afterwards, Darren Hardy goes, that was like Eminem as a motivational speaker. <laughs> and afterwards I got to speak with Darren and just pick his brain. And I was just like so impacted by the few words he said. Because like you said, in a short period of time, he was able to pour so much value, which goes hand in hand with what you're talking about in terms of his personal development. He wrote a book, The Compound Effect, which was incredible. Um, it's really basically just a, some, a culmination of what you just said, those four steps <laughs> compounded over time. Yeah, over what time, happened? exactly. 
So what would you say out of all of the, you read a lot. And that's amazing because most people, especially in our age, we're so distracted. It's hard to focus and read a book, right? That's why we have Audible and that's great. What would you say if a human was only allowed to read three books this year or just a few books or even one, whatever, that you would wish everyone could read that has had the oh, biggest impact on you? That's such a hard question. I, I, I want to I hit that question from a different direction uh, to start, but then I'll give you the, my answer. That's such a tough one because there's so many great books. And I believe that the books that you read will define you. And so there's so many great ones. Um, let, me, let me hit it from this direction. You mentioned, I love what you did. If you're, you love skateboarding or you love scuba diving or you love, uh, you love hang gliding or you love marine life, right? Like you just love these, you're just passionate about this stuff. My best advice to you is go study that subject. Like my mentor said to me, find subjects that you can, find a hobby that you can get rich at. Like, like knitting, like I, I could knit, like I wouldn't ever get rich at knitting. Like I, I did a, a men's physique competition just to have a goal and go, you know, try and do it. I'm never going to get rich at being a men's physique competitor. I just, this is not going to happen. But I found other hobbies that I could get rich at. I could learn a craft, learn a skill, and get rich at. To your point about uh, Tim Ferriss's one, like we live in this new world, dude. It's, it's literally, it's becomes so prevalent they call it the gig economy like Forbes is writing about it so it says there's tens of millions of people the, some of the articles most recently Forbes is saying is the gig economy going to ruin jobs like it's just this new world where people have these side gigs turn into their business and all those things that you mentioned people can go make money at that stuff like you can absolutely make money doing all the things that you you refer to so I used to when I was in school reading and studying, I didn't enjoy it at all. I didn't, I didn't look forward to it. I didn't like the homework. I didn't like the subjects unless there was a subject I was excited about. Then I, then I enjoyed it. My point is you're now an adult, dude, you get to read whatever the heck you want to read. And so find stuff that you're fired up to learn. Like when you pick up the book or when you listen to the audible, you're like, or when you watch the YouTube on it or the documentary on it or whatever, you want to study that subject. You're excited about that subject. That's how you make learning easy, particularly find subjects that you can get rich at. So let me go back to your question. Um, there's so many to pick from. I'll, 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 I'll name a couple that had huge impact on me, particularly at different times of my life. Like, like they kind of kept me going. I remember when I was in sales, I was selling this mall kiosk. And just to kind of paint the picture, we had, it cost us $50 per shift to rent this little kiosk. So it was all commission and it cost $50 a shift. So you're 21 years old. You're living in your mom's basement. But if you don't sell, not only did you not make money, you like lost money. You know what I'm saying? Like it cost you 50 bucks. And so I went a day without selling. And anyone that's ever been in sales, you know how the spiral happens, right? Like you, you go a whole day without selling. And all of a sudden you start getting in your head. And you're like, oh my gosh, am I good at this? And should I quit? And what should I, maybe I don't have the skills anymore. Second whole day, third whole day, fourth whole day. And like, I'm like spiraling out of control. I might turn into like a negative beast, you know, like, that I suck at this and the customers can't afford it anymore and this whole thing. You basically blame everybody but you, right? And then fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, eight days. So I'd, I'd worked, you know, 64 hours full blast because you're, you're, you're selling. So you have to like be on your feet, pulling people into your little kiosk. I'd worked 64 hours and sold zero, I'd sold nothing. And I was $400 in debt, which by the way, Ian, $400 in debt back then seemed like for zillion dollars. I mean, just, it just felt like, I was just like, dude, I had like a cell phone payment and my car payment, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I was like, I'm so in debt now. And I remember I walked to, I went to work the next day and I was ready to quit. I was just ready to quit. I was done. I was, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I think it was like one of my last, sh last shifts. And the guy who was kind of my manager, he's sitting there at the thing and he goes, how are you feeling? And dude, my shoulders were down, my chin's down. I'm, I'm ticked off. My, I'm, I'm as negative as you could imagine. And he goes, how are you doing? And I'm like, I suck at this. I go, I suck at this. I don't want to do this anymore. I suck at this. I can't sell anything to anybody. And he goes, okay. And he goes, you know, when I first met you, you were like the most happy guy ever. Like you were happy. You were positive. You're kind of bouncing off the walls. You were made everybody feel special. You smiled at people. Like you had tons of energy. He goes, look at you. And dude, he was right. Shoulders down, chin down, totally negative, totally frustrated. And he said, he gave me a CD series called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen R. Covey. And he said, I want you to listen to this. He said, if you listen to this and you don't want to sell anymore, that's fine. He goes, but I think you actually have some talent. I think you actually could do it. But he goes, you just got to get your head back, you know, get your, get your head screwed on straight. 
So I listened to Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and it was massively impactful. Like, uh, begin with the end in mind, and think win-win, and these, just these, these concepts, you know, as I, walk, as I listened to that. It, it got my head screwed on to where I couldn't keep blaming everybody. I had to take more personal ownership of my own issues and my own, like, lack of production. And that was one that was huge. I'll tell you a second one that was huge for me. Huge. Was Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was, like, 22 years old. And I know this is like old school now, but he had a concept, literally a concept changed my whole life. He said, I'll see if I can draw this in, in people's minds for him. He had the word poor and he underlined the word poor. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't like this page already because I don't want to be this guy, you know? And he said, what poor people do is they have an income and they drew an arrow down to the word expenses. He said, what poor people do is they make money and pay their bills. And I remember thinking, that's not what poor people do. That's what I do. You know, like, I'm like, and I didn't think I consider myself poor. Like, wasn't homeless, you know, like I had a life. He said, I turned the page over and it says rich and he undermines it. And I remember thinking, I like this page more already. You know, we're off to a better start. He says they have an income and he draws a line down the word assets. And his definition of an asset was an asset, something that generates cash for you every single month, regardless of whether you continue to exchange time or exchange effort for it. And then he had a, so it goes income down to assets, assets down to expenses. So he says, what you do is you have a job, you make money, that's your income. You use your income to build assets and you use your assets to pay your bills. I mean, I was just like, I'd never heard the word assets in my whole life at this point. Remember, I had no college education. I had no formal education. I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, dude, what's an asset? You know, how do you, like, how do you build an asset? I can remember thinking like, imagine if, if you have, let's just say that your, your bills each month are $4,000. Well, if, what if you have something that generates cash for you every month, regardless of whether you continue to exchange time or exchange effort, and it, it generates $4,000 a month, you're, and you still have your income. You're like financially free. You're like, dude, I'm like done, you know? And so I remember thinking, what's assets? He said, there's two ways to build them. You can build a business, put people to work for you, or you can build, you can invest money and put money to work for you. That helped me get so much clarity. As a 22-year-old kid, I started investing. I started to uh, build businesses. And that clarity, I've still kept to this day, that simple example of income to assets, assets pay your expenses. And I've been financially free because of that formula for many years. That simple, simple formula was life-changing. And again, I learned that from a book. What was that book worth? Was it worth the 1995 I paid it at Barnes Noble? Like, yes, dude, it freaking changed my whole life. So that's just a couple quick examples. There's obviously so many others that are have had a huge impact. I'll give you two other quick ones. I, I read Elon Musk's biography and I read Jeff Bezos from Amazon, his biography. Talk about thinking bigger. Like here I am trying to build this company, like trying to change the world with my company. Elon Musk is trying to colonize Mars, dude. Like he wakes up every morning trying to think, how do I colonize Mars? And and I wake up every morning trying to like think about how do I like sell more product to our company? Like think bigger. And that that, that was the number one thing I took from those two books was I just thought bigger. I just thought bigger about what's possible, bigger about what I want to accomplish. And so again, I have so many, you know, but those would be a couple of just quick ones that really hit me at, at key times in my life that I needed, I needed that information. First of all, I love Elon Musk. What an amazing human. I, I, he's typically the person I'm listening to when I'm just like listening to stuff. Um, just his ideas and his thinking and his thought process. I love the, uh, podcast he did with um, Joe Rogan. It was one of the most insightful podcasts I've ever listened to. But one thing you just were talking about is you you made something very apparent is that our struggles are what make our victories worth it. Like even on a micro scale, I've been sick for the past week and it's been, I've just been so down the last week. I just like can't even get out of bed. I'm like, dang, I just feel so bad. But now I'm slowly starting to feel better and I'm just so appreciative because I you know was sick last week and now I feel good and it's like I'm even that much happier. Talk about a time when you've truly hit rock bottom because people see, you know, what your lifestyle is and what you're doing and what you're living and just how you do what you do with the JP flow. You got the dream house, the dream family, you know, the dream lifestyle. Talk about a time when you were at literally the rock bottom and, and what you did to kind of get yourself yeah, out of that. Yeah, so I remember there's been, there's actually been a couple different times, you know, um, it's been a, it's been kind of a journey. But I remember when I was, um, so I got married, I got married relatively young. I was 22 when I got married and, and, uh, three, uh, let's see, what was it? So we got married in January. One year later, we had a baby. 
one year and one year and one month later. So I was 22 and I was married, 23 and I had a child. And so I had, I had life coming at me relatively quick. Right. And I remember, um, I had left that little animated Bible sales job at the job at the mall. I was actually good at it, dude. I was like, I was like good at this job, but I'd left that to do real estate because my dad had done real estate. So I wouldn't got my license and I'm like, I'm going to go to real estate. Well, my wife and I were, she was pregnant with our first child. We lived in a place called Rose Park, Utah. So Rose Park, Utah is like the hood, dude, for real. Like no offense, Rose Park, my bad. But like Rose Park is like totally the hood. Like it's like, it's not a safe neighborhood. And we, we had this little um, place that we were renting in Rose Park for $500 a month. And so I had my pregnant wife at home. She was very, very, very sick. My wife had six pregnancies and we had four babies. We had a miscarriage and a stillborn birth. And she would get terribly sick through all six of them. Like I'm talking 12 to 15 times a day throwing up and she like had to go get IVs and it just was not awesome. It was, it was, her pregnancies were really rough. So I, I started into real estate. I'm going to go conquer the world in real estate. And I went six months with no income. And so I, I, I had a little bit of savings from this little animated Bible video job, right? But dude, I was burning through savings like it was my job, dude. Because I, I had this little family I was trying to, you know, take care of and had our cars and I was just this, you know, our bills and whatever. And I remember one day I came home, all the pressure was mounting because I had no income coming in. And I remember coming home one day and I looked at our account and we had, we had like $1,900 left in the account and our bills were like 2,200. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like this. And the bills were about to hit in the next day or so, which, which meant it was going to wipe out every dollar that I had to my name plus some, you know, like plus, plus some, some to give, you know? And I remember my, I don't remember where my wife was, but I was home alone and I literally remember the pressure. I started crying and I felt like the tears were going this way, dude. They weren't even like falling down. They, they were like defying gravity. They were like shooting out from my face. And I just sat there and just weeped like a little baby. I was just like, I just cried. So I was like, I'm failing. We don't have any more, like we're out of money. Like I, I, and I, and I can't generate it with this job because in real estate, there's a little bit of a, from activity to result can take, there's a timeline, right? You, you know, where you're like list the house and then show the house and then cl even, even get a, an offer and write the offer. It just, there's, there's a lag time sometimes. And I was in the middle of this lag time. Uh, long story short, I just, I just bawled, dude, just cried the pressure of like trying to figure this whole thing out. And it seems so silly now. I get it. Someone's listening like, dude, that wasn't even that bad, but it just was just one of those times where you're like at your wits end. Like you just were at the end of the rope. Uh, we, I remember when our business went out of, out of business, I had become the number three earner, the national spokesperson for this company. I had, I, I, I had, I had like conquered the mountain and like two months later, the business collapsed the company failed the the owners like pulled the plug in this company and i remember crying that time too by the way i'm not a huge crier either but like just the pressure of like all that work all that time and here's one thing i'll share with you someone asked me uh i i, I shared an, another story you may have heard this when i was uh, uh driving home one night and i pulled over in, a, in this rest stop i have this this story that i've shared before it was a really kind of uh really challenging time for me and someone came to me and they said, so how did you keep going? Like what, you never told the end of the story. How, like what made you keep going? And here's the answer, bro. There's two things. One is I put my left foot in front of my right foot and I stumbled forward. Like being an entrepreneur is not always just like you're just running full speed and you're tearing it up. There's sometimes where it's like you're stopped dead in your tracks and the only thing you can do is lean forward and put a left foot in front of right foot and a right foot in front of left foot and a left foot in front of right foot. Just... Just keep moving forward. Like, in other, don't stop and don't, uh, don't lay, don't, don't go backwards. Just, just stumble forward. And then here's the thing I'd, I'd like to share with you is it's hard to succeed. Becoming a successful entrepreneur is hard. Like this, this idea that we teach each other online, like it's so easy. It's only three steps to a million dollars. Like, no, dude, it's hard, dude. It's hard. It takes the very best you got takes a lot of grace, takes a lot of blessings, takes a lot of hard work. It's, it's hard. You have to develop. It's, it's challenging. But I remember a friend of mine, he's a, he's, a, he's a famous historian. And he's on Fox News and MSNBC and CNN all the time. He's a multiple-time New York Times bestselling author. He's a, primarily a presidential historian. Like He, he uh, served in the White House with President Reagan. He was a special assistant to Reagan and served in the White House under Herbert Walker Bush. And so he's this really interesting guy. Spoke all over the world. 
he gave this speech once. I don't remember where, where he was, but the guy walks up to him after and he goes, he goes, you're, you're, you're telling everyone it's, that, you know, you're making it seem like it's so easy to succeed. And my friend said, he, the guy goes, it's hard. You, you have to go through hell to become successful. My friend said, you're right. You're right. You do have to go through hell to become successful. He goes, but you have to go through hell to fail too. He said, so if you have to go through hell either way, you might as well get something for it. And so I tell people, if you do, you know, I think it's a Les Brown quote. If you do what is easy, your life will be hard. But if you're willing to do what is hard, your life will be easy. And so here's my options, Ian. One is to stumble forward. And two is to lay there. I tell people, getting on the horse and riding the horse of life, like riding the horse of business or whatever, cool, good for you. I admire the person that's gotten bucked off the horse they land in the gravel and the rocks. They're laying there bleeding. And instead of just laying there bleeding and just rolling over and dying, they sit up, they stand up, they dust themselves off, they pull the rocks out of their wounds, they wrap up their wounds, and they get back on the freaking horse again and go. Like, what was my other option? Just lay there and bleed? You know, I, I wasn't going to do that. And so I that that's how I got through it, as I just stumbled forward. And I thought, it's hard to succeed, but it's hard to fail. And if, I, if it's going to be hard either way, I'd rather pick... Uh, succeeding you know if you were to be able to go back in time and talk to yourself at 21 22 fresh out of college and you could whisper say one two three things into your ear knowing everything you know now 10 years later what would that advice be what i probably would have done knowing with full hindsight is i would have gotten into uh i would have gotten into the 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 uh security industry where they were knocking door to door selling security, it ultimately turned into a, there's a huge multi-billion dollar company out here that that's kind of how they started. I, I think I would have made a scene career in that world. It would have been like just scary, but what I would have, the second piece of advice I would have give it, given. So here's, here's where I'm really the, the higher level of that advice. I would have got into a, an industry that had more economic upside. The selling the cartoon videos, I was literally the best I'd ever had in 26 years. I was the best employee that ever had and I made a great living doing it but the economic upside was 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 relatively limited meaning the the marketplace was there was a there's a cap on the marketplace uh that so that security world those guys uh had a way bigger caps I mean they, they it, instead of building multi-million dollar companies they built multi-billion dollar companies so the second thing I would have done is I would have gotten into being an owner faster and where I wasn't just a sales guy, I was actually owning. Um, those are the two things I probably would have done because I think those two things probably would have led me down the similar path to what I did, uh, which was getting into the networking world. But I would have, I would just would have came in with way more steam because there was just the, the economic upside. So you want, you want an economic engine and whatever you're going to do, whatever your hobby is, whatever your like skill you're going to go learn, you want an economic engine that can make you rich. This is if your if your goal is to be, you know, your goal is to become successful, right? To become wealthy. You want to find an, something that, that has huge economic upside. And so where if you're the best at it, if you're the best, you're not making 100 grand a year. If you're the best or 200 or something like that, if you're the best, you're making right. a fortune. You know what I'm saying? Like that you want to find things that have big ceilings. And that's what I would have, I would have, I wish I would have had a little bit more uh, foresight to spend those first four or five years with something that had a higher ceiling. Because I think I would have, I would have accelerated my career even that much more. But look, I don't have any regrets. I don't look back with regrets. I just, I just look as I've looked back. I that's what I would have done because I think I would have, I would have the economic upside would have been so much higher. What would you say to somebody right now that is maybe working a nine to five job? Maybe they've been consistently, you know, grinding. Maybe they love what they do. Maybe they hate what they do. Maybe they're making a comfortable living. They have money in their pocket. They're saving a little bit every month, and they feel good, right? But there's a part of them that's just itching to like jump in and start their own business and start their own venture and become their own CEO, become their own boss or fire their boss and and make moves. But there's just something holding them back. And if you could just say this one thing, what would your advice be to that person that's just right on the cusp of making that jump to become an entrepreneur or, or do, you know, really what they dream of? So I, I yes for one, but I'm going to give them two because okay, I think it's important. The first thing is this. Make sure that you're testing the idea. Like, go, go, go share the idea with people. Like, don't leave this job that you have. I mean, that's I, like, I tested even part time. Like, go test it in the marketplace. I have a friend of mine that built a company that did over $100 million in business with $1,500 investment. 
And how did he do that? Crazy amounts of sweat equity. He literally would go knock on a door, sell his product. He didn't even have the product yet, dude. Like he was fulfilling orders that he didn't even have a product yet for. I mean, just pure, straight up hustle. And he tested the idea and the idea worked. So the first thing I would share with you is go test your idea. Like, is, the, is it a good idea? Do you have a good idea? Because uh, ideas are easy, execution's hard. Don't execute on a crappy idea. Execute on great ideas. The second thing I would share is this. You have to overcome your fear. And, and I used to think it was fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of what are people going to say about me, all that kind of stuff. Brendan Burchard said, said it this weekend, and it, it resonated with, resonate with me at a really deep level. He said, our fear is actually not fear of rejection, fear of failure. The, a real fear is the fear of looking small. It's the fear of starting over again. Because here you are at your job. You are somebody at your job. They know who you are. You know what to do. You show up and you, you kind of know what's going on. You make money. Well, when you start something brand new, you start over at the bottom. And so what I would share with you is that's anything worth doing is worth doing poorly until you learn how to do it well. Like it's, it's, it's okay to start and be fresh again, be awkward again, be uncomfortable again. That's how you, that's how you do great things is you start with just like freak. I mean, Ian, when we were starting our company, there were so many days, so many days. I was like, man, I don't know if we're gonna be able to pull this thing off. I, didn't, I just didn't know if it was all gonna be able to come together, but we just kept that thing of like, let's kept pushing the boundaries, kept pushing the boundaries. To, to be able to finally, you know, pull it off with, with crazy timelines and crazy obstacles. And so that's what I would share is, is get over your ego, test your idea, and then get over your ego and go be awkward, go be uncomfortable, go start and go fall on your face. Uh, failure as a, in, in our education system is bad. If you fail, you get kicked out of class. If you fail, you have to go to resource. If you fail, you get your parents get called to the principal's office. Failure as a, an employee is bad. If you fail, you get fired. And if you get fired, you can't pay your rent. You know, it's like not a good thing. As an entrepreneur, failure is fertilizer. Failure is not final. It's not an event. It's a person. Failure is not a person. It's an event. So failure is fertilizer. Your, your success will grow in the fertilizer of failure as an entrepreneur. So get out there and fail. Get out there and learn. Fail fast. Fail early. Fail often. Learn and optimize. Adapt what you're doing and go make it work. And that's, I think, what holds most of us back is we don't want to look small again. We don't want to go have to start from the bottom again. We don't have to go fail again. No, dude, that's how you grow as an entrepreneur is in a fertilizer of failure. Amazing. I need to go get myself some fertilizer of failure and just go sleep in it. <laughs> I'm going to be sprouting. So, so JP, I know you started a Facebook community and I really want my viewers to know about it because I think they can get a lot of value out of it. Can you tell us a little bit what that's about and how they can get involved with that? Yeah, so it's called Intentional Greatness Academy. It's a free group. And I started it because um, I—it's like—it's like, it's like it, to me, it's like—it's like the war on mediocrity. It's like I look at—I look at people. They have all the greatness within them. They have all of the—it's already there, dude. They're already worthy. They're already whole. They're already complete. They already have what it takes. And yet they're playing super, super small. Like they're not doing any. They're not unlocking this greatness. And then for me, I'm kind of a practical guy, right? So like for me, I'm like, why is that happening? And the number one thing for me is people are just not intentional. We live in a world of reaction and distraction versus like intentional creation. We have all the potential in the world to do great things, but we're so kind of lived in this little microscope world of like just, just getting stuff done for today, getting stuff done for this week, and just reaction, distraction, reaction, distraction, that we're not tapping into the greatness within us. We're not unlocking it because we're not intentional enough. And so I built that community to help people to get to learn the tools. It's, it's what I call CFO, clarify, focus, optimize, clarify what you want, focus on it, and then optimize your habits to go hit it. You mentioned this earlier on habits. Excellence is not an act. It's a habit. We, we are what we repeatedly do. So it's, it's building the right, optimizing the right habits and patterns to, to and focus, staying focused and getting clear on what you want. So you, you clarify, focus, optimize. And I, I believe people, they have greatness within them. I believe that they have, they can do unlimited things, unlimited impact if they'll learn how to get more intentional. So that's where that whole thing came from. It's been a huge success. People are fired up about it and, you know, we're able to serve at a higher level. So it's been really cool. And Justin, how can people follow you on social media? Yeah. So uh, go to IamJustinPrince.com. Go to IamJustinPrince on, uh, on Instagram, JustinPrince on, uh, on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, just the whole gig. But uh if you know, I, I put out, as you know, Ian, I put out a ton of free content to 
serve leaders, to serve entrepreneurs, to help them to unlock their intentional greatness and to help them to scale their businesses and increase their influence. So I'd love to be able to serve your audience. Beautiful. Well, Justin, as always, it's such a pleasure. I appreciate your time. You're such a good friend. And uh, yeah, man, I can't wait to get this out. This is going to be an awesome one. Hey, look, it's my honor. I'll, I'll share one thing about you that I, I just absolutely admire. You, you're one of the happiest, most positive. And, and by the way, people see you on your podcast. And I think maybe it's like it's like you're turning it on for the podcast. No, dude, you like have to calm it down for the podcast. You're like one of the po most positive, most optimistic, most happy people and I tell people, we're not doing all this stuff for a paper with dead presidents' faces on it. We're doing all this stuff to find fulfillment and to find happiness and to find not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. And Ian, you like embody that mantra of, of fulfillment and happiness as well as anyone I've ever met. I just, I just, I really admire that about you. Well, people like you make it easy to be happy. So I appreciate you, Jay. You're the man, bro. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Hasta luego. Thank you for listening to another episode of Len Jones Party of Two. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and subscribe to stay up to date on our new episodes. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.